Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to this edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have Gordon Graham. Gordon is a whistleblower who set down what happened to him in a book called The Intrepid Brotherhood. These events happened about 15 years ago, so we talk about them in detail and their relevance for today. We also explore Aristotle and Aristotle's philosophy, what it means for the compliance professional, the ethicist, and how you can incorporate the thoughts from Aristotle into your compliance program today to create greater transparency and a more effective whistleblower system. Have you ever thought about the intersection of tax and compliance? Well, I had not until I did a five-part podcast series on Taxman with Tracy Howe on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have with me Gordon Graham. Gordon is the author of The Intrepid Brotherhood. But more importantly for this audience, Gordon is a whistleblower. And he was a whistleblower long before, I don't want to say it became fashionable, but a long time ago uh, when it really took some courage to do that. And uh, he um, has recently published a book on his story, as I said, called The Intrepid Brotherhood, and he's uh, taken some time to visit with us today. So, Gordon, first of all, thank you and uh, for taking this time to visit with me and tell our audience a little bit about your story. Well, thank you, Tom. This is a great opportunity, and I'm glad to be here today. So could you tell us a little bit about your professional background, Gordon? Well, I've got uh, over 35 years of actual experience in information technology, and if you if you include uh, the time I invested in my education, I've been exposed to information technology, that industry, uh, for over 40 years. So I've seen uh, every technological transition from probably around 1970 until well, I retired in 2012. So I, I saw everything from uh, electronic accounting machines to, to modern technologies and, uh, and lived through all those transitions and the requirements related to each one. So now let's turn to your work at, I hope I pronounced this right, Chelan County Public Utility District. Could you first tell our audience, they may not know where Chelan County is, so could you tell us geographically where this work was? 
So one of the first things that I was cautioned not to do in these podcast situations is to correct the host. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I hesitate to actually uh, uh, correct your pronunciation, but it's actually Shalan, C-H-E-L-A-N, Shalan. If you ever watched uh, Kelsey Grammer and uh, his TV show, uh, Frasier, they uh, they kind of assumed a different inflection and called it Shalon just to uh, kind of uh, impress people, I think. Uh, anyway, it, uh, it's Chelan County Public Utility District. It's a state-chartered public agency, which is actually the third largest non-federal public hydroelectric utility in the nation. If you didn't know, I'm a Texan, and of course, we accent every first syllable, like hurricane and insurance and omnipotent. So thank you for correcting me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known. That's just my default on when I don't know words. I always emphasize the first uh, syllable. So, But where uh, where in Washington State is uh, Chelan County? Uh, it's it's in Wenatchee, um, which a lot of people also mispronounce, but it's uh, almost equidistant between Seattle and Spokane, right in the middle of the state, uh, north central Washington, uh, in a in a valley which uh, is on the Columbia River, which is the primary source of of uh, generation power for for that utility. So, what was your final role uh, at? Uh, the PUD, and um, what led to your termination? I spent uh, approximately 23 years and seven months there, and the last uh, seven years or so, I was the director of uh, information technology, and in that capacity, I led the uh, business technology function and everything that that entailed. I had up to 28 staff members at one time uh, managed a budget in excess uh, of of three million dollars and a project portfolio that most of the time hovered around 24 25 projects we had um, a number of things in process of implementation at the time that i was terminated uh, to mature our processes as an it service organization and try to become a world-class IT entity. And so we took our job seriously and were providing what we thought was a great deal of benefit to the organization. Uh, my termination actually resulted from uh, conflicts, there's really no other way to put it, between our management philosophy and the leadership of the organization, the actual CEO. Um, he was an individual who had come to the utility in the early and mid nineties and had progressed uh, through one mechanism or another to the general manager's office. And so he was in charge and his approach to managing the organization was in direct contrast to what we were trying to do to establish uh, better communication and respect and, to mature our processes, uh, to implement things uh, that were more akin to learning and organization concepts. And he was uh, essentially a dictator. And we decided, myself and a couple of my supervisors decided that we were going to try to excel 
in the in those circumstances or under those circumstances rather than to cut and run or or just give up and that ultimately led to my termination and each one of those people leaving under similar or um, uh, circumstances that were dictated by by the environment at the time. As I mentioned at the outset of this podcast, Gordon, you were a whistleblower, and um, that gave you some protections under both uh, Washington state law and uh, internal policy and procedures of the public utility district. Could you tell us uh, what led to the whistleblowing and what was the issue you whistle blew on? The the catalyst or the central piece was a huge uh, software implementation project that was undertaken pretty much in spite of our um, information technology uh, management structure. In other words, it was it was done under the auspices of a completely separate uh, organizational entity that was established by the general manager and. Uh, it it was destined to fail from the outset because he put uh, people in charge that had no information technology experience, no project management experience, um, no software selection experience, no requirements definition experience, nothing nothing related to what would make a project like that successful, and then hired a implementation partner, an external contractor, who actually had some experience implementing this product, but was more interested in just being able to put that on their resume and say, well, we we did this here at this utility, rather than trying to cooperate with those of us internally that knew better how to implement this product or how to select the right product in the first place, because they chose one that was entirely too large and too expensive for our organization without our professional input. We were pretty much isolated. We still, um, I disciplined my staff to keep their heads down, to dedicate themselves professionally and try to make this successful because I knew just from the experience that I had had that if the project failed or looked like it was going to fail, that fingers would start pointing at us. We would be the scapegoat. And I didn't want to allow that to happen. So my mantra to my staff was, uh, let's do everything we can to be professional and help them succeed in this project. And hopefully that success will will ripple down to us and we'll, we'll regain our status as the information technology professionals at this organization. I didn't know how how sinister our CEO was and how dedicated he was to not letting us get any kind of positive uh, image building from this project, even if it was successful. But when things really started to uh, to go south, uh, both in uh, expenditures, uh, cost overruns, uh, schedule slippage, a number of different things related to the project, we started to make inquiries and suggestions and 
to try to get the attention of people on the steering committee, uh, in the boardroom, uh, at the C-level uh, management executive suite. And we were oppressed and suppressed in every endeavor and persecuted as a result. Um, that's how deep the dysfunction was in the organization. Uh, it ended up to where um, I ultimately had to um, file for protection under uh, the whistleblower policy that we had at the organization because it became apparent that I was going to be made the ultimate scapegoat and uh, and fingers would be able to be pointed at me for everything that went wrong with this project. I should have had the protection that you mentioned. Protection under their whistleblower policy was denied to me, and every appeal was denied. And in the end, uh, they they found an excuse to, uh, to terminate me. They thought they had found an excuse to terminate me, even though my performance, uh, my attitude, my approach to everything in my career there was extremely positive. My evaluations were positive. They had, they had no for cause or no cause to terminate me, and so they created a circumstance where they thought they could get away with it. And that's what the story in my book uh, is is all about, and that's what it primarily addresses. So, Gordon, uh, we use the term constructive discharge. Uh, could you explain for those who may not know uh, what a constructive discharge is? So it's a legal term, and I, I'm no lawyer. <laughs> That's the disclaimer right up front. But uh, it's it's sometimes referred to as constructive termination or constructive dismissal. And what it actually is is creating um, intolerable working conditions so that an employee simply can't stay. Uh, they're trying to make it impossible for an employee to be able to endure and uh, to stay and work in, in the circumstances that they've created. It involves a lot of uh, discrimination and harassment. I'm sure that a lot of companies get away with it, uh, especially if it's not identified and probably because a lot of employees do decide to check out and and uh, voluntarily leave. Uh, I chose not to do that, even though uh, myself and several of my supervisors and staff members were being uh, persecuted relentlessly. Um, but that's what the situation is, and that's what the term refers to, is creating those circumstances under which an employee simply can't endure or stay in their current situation. We're going to have a quick message from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more from Gordon Graham. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
Gordon, you eventually uh, filed suit after your termination. Can you tell us what the jury said at the end of the trial? So what the, after all of the, the legal arguments, what the jury was charged with um, addressing were two primary issues. The first one was, was I wrongfully discharged in violation of public policy? And what that directly related to was, the question was, did the, did the organization have a policy which should have dictated how employees are dealt with uh, and the circumstances under which they can be terminated. And so the question was, did the utility uh, wrongfully discharge me in violation of their own policy? And the second one, the second question they were asked to address was uh, violation of promises of specific treatment in specific circumstances. And that relates directly to the whistleblower policy. So did they did they provide me the protection that was supposed to be afforded by that policy, or did they violate the promises of treatment in that policy by denying me uh, protection? And those were the things that the the jury were supposed to address, and they did that. Uh, at the end of the trial, they decided that the utility was guilty of both of those things, both the wrongful discharge in violation of their uh, employment and policy and uh, specific treatment policies, and then also violation of the the whistleblower protection. So now, uh, and and they awarded you monetary damages as well. They they did yes. Uh, I'm a recovering trial lawyer, so I'm very intrigued by that. But I will say the most impressive thing about all of that to me was, uh, I believe it was reported in your book, but I may have come across it in other resources researching you was. That, took the jury three hours to decide. And let me tell you, when a jury decides anything in three hours, that means it's a slam dunk. Uh, so, yeah, that was to me the most impressive thing. We, we felt the same way. Uh, my attorney, of course, cautioned me that there was no way to predict how long it was going to take. But when it came back as quickly as it did, I think he was, he was pretty uh, happy and pretty positive about it. Uh, but they still have to reserve judgment until the jury foreman actually speaks. And, uh, but we were pretty optimistic. Well, let me turn to your book, uh, The Intrepid Brotherhood. Uh, I found it interesting on multiple levels. But I'd first like to ask, uh, the book was just, uh, you self-published it, and that was done relatively recently. I wanted to ask, why uh, did you wait so long to write this book? Or perhaps conversely, why did you feel the need now to uh, to write this book to uh, to tell your story, the the trial ended in as you know in two thousand nine, and during this interim period, I have been encouraged or had been encouraged by former colleagues, uh, other members of of the Brotherhood that's mentioned in the book, uh, and friends, family, uh, neighbors. Who, who have heard this story or were familiar with it to, to actually to write it, to record it, to, to make it public for one reason or another. And my response to them was, well, I, I'm enjoying retirement <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure that I could write anything like that anyway uh, and you know have it get any kind of reception at all. But then I started thinking about it uh, more seriously. I think life coaches 
I've actually had at least one tell me that my ultimate decision, whether I admit it to myself or not, is attributable to unfulfilled purpose. And I think that's probably true. I, I had just had to close the loop because we were trying to do some very, very positive things for that organization. And even though my career after I left there was very successful and satisfying, and my retirement's been very good, I think it was just unfortunate that we weren't able to to leave people in that valley and in that utility uh, with the knowledge and impression that uh, that we were the ones that were trying to do the right thing and that we were trying to provide value for that organization. And unfortunately, they had someone in charge who just wasn't going to let that happen. And it's really unfortunate to the public ratepayers, the people that actually own that utility and and um, are, are who the management is supposed to and the elected board members are supposed to represent. So that unfulfilled purpose was probably at least part of it. And then the other part was I always felt like the story needed to be told, but I hadn't really identified an audience or anybody that it would benefit. And so part of the coaching process for getting into this, my ghostwriter and then uh, the self-publishing company that I dealt with, they all said, you need to define who this is for and make sure that you address that in the narrative. And so I started thinking, well, this could actually help elected board members. It could help managers who are looking for uh, the right direction to make sure that they stay on track and don't end up doing the same thing that that our CEO and general manager did. It can help uh, employees recognize dysfunction in their own organizations and then figure out how they want to try to deal with it, how much risk they're willing to take, uh, how far they're willing to step out to try to help their own organization. And then there's just the realization that I'm not getting any younger, and I didn't want I didn't want to be you know faced with the knowledge that I didn't have enough time left to record this story. And, and looking at myself in the mirror going, gosh, I wish I would have done that. So uh, all those things combined, I think, caused me to finally sit down. I think we started this almost exactly two years ago. I identified uh, a ghostwriter and started working with him. Uh, I had an outline already, and I had assembled a lot of resources as far as material, but I didn't know how I was going to get this done. And uh, it took us about a year to write the manuscript and then the editing process and cleaning things up after that. I got a hold of the sketch artist after we had a, uh, accomplished the, uh, the initial manuscript and asked him if we could use the editorial cartoons that he had published or that the local newspaper had published and he had provided uh, back when all these activities were taking place, because that was, as I described in the book, the <clears throat> the conscience of the community at the time. He His cartoons represented how they were thinking, and I thought, gosh, this would be a great addition. <clears throat> so I got his permission, and he provided me with those, and I added them, and then it's taken about, it all, took almost another year to actually get it into print. In January 18th, of this year was when it was officially released. So about a two-year process. Um, I know that's a long-winded answer, but that's uh, that's why and how I finally decided to get this done. 
and uh, so far I'm pretty happy with it. So one of the things that intrigued me about the book, in addition to your your story, was your interpretation and use of Aristotle. And many people think of Aristotle, rightly so, for his ethics. Uh, but you actually uh, talked about Aristotle uh, from from leadership and the leadership lessons you you garnered from Aristotle. So I was wondering if you could tell us, uh, from your perspective, Gordon, what were some of the key leadership lessons you were able to derive from Aristotle? So here's the advantage that I had, um, and the reason that a couple of reasons I included that in my book as as kind of a foundation is is because I had been exposed to uh, Aristotle's virtue ethics when I was taking my master's degree program. And there were a number of business writers, uh, leadership writers, uh, Peter Drucker, Ken Blanchard, uh, Chris Argyris, uh, folks like that, who actually translated uh, Aristotle's virtue ethics and the principles that that he had espoused and translated them into uh, to leadership for business, leadership concepts for business. I think I think Drucker was probably uh, the most visible. He actually wrote uh, something and referred to uh, Aristotle's ethics or virtue ethics as the ethics of prudence and related those to uh, successfully managing and and leading people and and organizations. So I had that background. And the interesting thing was everything that my supervisors and myself encountered when we were trying to um, enhance our performance in our organization, in our department, uh, all of the frameworks, all of the leadership principles, uh, everything that we read about and encountered, we'd find ourselves going, where have I seen that before? Uh, where have I heard that before? Where does that come from? And every time it, we could relate them back to uh, Aristotle's uh, virtue ethics of wisdom, temperance, bravery, and, and justice, although translated into modern uh, business strategies or, or leadership techniques. Uh, it was amazing how uh, everything that we we read and tried to implement had some anchor in those those ethics that were established back in ancient Greece. So that was one big reason that uh, I wanted to include Aristotle's ethics and at least a little bit of a description of why those were important in this book. The other hook. Um, and actually, the book originally had a different title. I was going to call it "In Search of Aristotle," and and keep that that ethics lesson in there. But also, uh, the the other hook is later in the story, after the trial, there was an individual that emerged in the editorial comments in the local newspaper that took the position of support for the utility against my efforts, the decisions at the trial, uh, everything that we were trying to do from a, uh, a leadership perspective, although they didn't directly attack our leadership focus. It was 
the things that we did to question the the project. And he, he characterized himself, he actually referred to himself as Aristotle. And so that's where the in search of Aristotle came from. We never did determine who that individual was. And I don't want to know. To this day, I don't want to know uh, because it's just kind of part of the mystery. And it was significant that that was really the only person who who came forward and stepped up to support the position of the utility uh, against uh, my trial, my efforts, and what we were trying to do. But I think I, I, I just want to hearken back a little bit to what I think is the most important uh, part of of uh, including Aristotle in my book is is because those virtue ethics provided so much foundation and material for modern leadership and management writers to uh, develop their own uh, techniques and and promote positive approaches to to leadership and managing people and organizations. Gordon, from your perspective, why or how does literally an entire organization's culture, values, and even ethics start at the top of an organization, and how that can that be influenced both positively and negatively? In uh, just to try to to relate it to something specific like like compliance, uh, if you don't have a leader that is ethical, uh, it's not likely that that attitude. Uh, well, it, it's likely that that attitude is going to filter down to the rest of the organization, and. What that does, I think you could also attest to, is that it compromises the ability to adhere to compliance requirements. Um, in my role uh, as a, a director, uh, I was expected, as every other employee was in my organization, to adhere to a list of administrative instructions and uh, policies and procedures that were as long as my leg. There were steps related to each one of those if they were implemented as as a policy. Say, for instance, uh, contract requirements or if you wanted to hire someone, every one of those departments that had jurisdiction over those had had requirements and checklists that you had to go through in order to be able to accomplish that. Well, if you've got a, a CEO that says who has the attitude rules for thee, but not for me and wants to go out and hire whoever that he wants to and provide them with, um, with compensation that hasn't gone through the evaluation process, uh, marketing review, all that type of stuff, uh, wants to circumvent the requirement to actually uh, come up with a job description and put it out for, public competition and application, that's a, a compliance issue. And if that CEO at the same time wants to go out and retain a contractor to perform a consultant, say, for instance, to perform some exercise at the utility without going through a request for proposal and evaluation of that request, and then um, being able to uh, establish, uh, you know, procedures and requirements, a scope for that engagement and have that reviewed and approved, then that's a compliance issue. 
And it all relates to whether or not uh, that leader has the ethics to be able to uh, make the right decision and do the right thing in order to adhere to compliance and set that example for the organization. So that's just one example of how a, a leader that does not have the ethics or possess the ethics um, to, to create the right atmosphere for his subordinates and his organization can, uh, can actually have a uh, detrimental effect on the culture and uh, the entire organization uh, simply becomes dysfunctional uh, in, in one way or another or many ways. Uh, so that's how, that's how the entire culture values and ethics of an organization can start and, and should be manifested and represented at the top. And why do you feel that a true um, speak-up culture, not simply a hotline, not simply protection for those who whistleblow, is essential to an ethical organization. One of the things I mentioned briefly earlier was that uh, if employees don't feel like um, they are being supported or that there's open communication or that they have the respect uh, to be able to voice their opinions, exercise some flexibility and and uh, be able to improve their job functions, if they don't feel like those things are available to them, then they have a tendency to, to check out in one way or another. And by that, I mean either mentally uh, check out where they just resign themselves to, to come in every day, uh, go through the motions, uh, don't try to offer any kind of improvement or improve themselves, just try to meet minimal expectations and exist, which which really isn't any kind of career satisfaction at all, or, or they physically check out. They actually leave, uh, which leaves, in some cases, a gaping hole in the organization that they have to fill. And it's a, it's a uh, cyclical thing. So you fill it with somebody else. They experience the same thing. They check out either mentally or physically. And so it just keeps happening and happening. Um, the the uh, golden rules of uh, change management and project management success include and emphasize communication and respect, both of those things. And so uh, if you don't have those two things and don't embody those things in your organization, then it's going to be difficult for people to feel like they can provide feedback and speak up and uh, and establish team learning and and uh, organizational learning and um, and make improvements just through those mechanisms. So, uh, not having the ethics and the knowledge to create that type of open communication, uh, so that people can provide feedback and speak up, can actually can actually kill your organization and. Um, uh, I guess, suppress uh, initiative. So, Gordon, why do you feel that, or do you feel that Aristotle is perhaps even more relevant today than he's always been, or has he always been relevant and we're just adapting, adapting him to the 21st century? 
the latter. I think he's always been relevant, and we continue to adapt his virtue ethics. Uh, you look at uh, you look at authors like our favorite uh, one minute manager fellow Ken Blanchard, and everything that he's written um, about uh, servant leadership. Um, you look at uh, Peter Sinji and the Fifth Discipline, and the learning organization, uh, all of those things leverage uh, Aristotle's virtue ethics, although they may not directly mention it. You can recognize um, how Aristotle's influence has affected most of the leadership writers of today. So I think I think he'll always be relevant. Um, it's, it's interesting that I subscribe to uh, a a uh, academic uh, research paper and a doctoral thesis uh, uh, mechanism called academia.edu. And I think I get uh, a, a paper, an, an average of one a day, and sometimes it's multiple uh, papers per day that deal with Aristotle's virtue ethics. So you've got people in in the educational environment, uh, students and instructors, leaders who are writing about his virtue ethics and how they apply to organizations uh, these days, uh, contemporary organizations, uh, and they're writing about it every day. Um, there's just an endless amount of material. So uh, I think there's a lot of recognition for, for what he established and what, uh, what he was trying to promote uh, in in the organizational management concepts today. Gordon, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, on the um, Intrepid Brotherhood, um, any of the topics we've touched upon today, what would be the best way for them to go about uh, finding out more information? I, I have... Um, a LinkedIn profile, which I can, I will provide to you. Uh, the website for the book is theintrepidbrotherhood.com, and I'll send that to you also. It's got uh, information about my background, um, testimonials out there from uh, people that I think are significant uh, in the story and in the community at the time who, who knew what we experienced. Um, and then uh, if people want to know more about the concepts that we've talked about today, I can and will send you a list of uh, the authors that I referenced and maybe maybe some of their works, um, because I think it's worthwhile for people that are interested in, uh, in things like servant leadership and the learning organization and, uh, and things that. Uh, can improve their own organizations, take advantage of what these people have written. Uh, really good stuff. I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. Uh, this has been a fascinating exploration of your story, leadership, uh, and a wide variety of other topics. And I wanted to, to not only thank you again, but also um, perhaps we could continue this conversation with either some other articles or some other topics down the road. I would welcome that opportunity, and, and this has been uh, my pleasure. I hope you feel like it's been worthwhile, and I would look forward to talking to you again. Thanks very much. 
This is Tom Fox again. That concludes part two of this special two-part podcast series with Dan Kahn and Matt Galvin. If you didn't have the chance to check out part one, I would urge you to go back and listen to it as they walk us through several key decisions around working with and dealing with the DOJ during an FCPA investigation. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.